The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about implementing the National Ocean Policy Plan. And my guests are Allison Chase and Sarah Chases. And they were on episode... Uh, an earlier episode uh, was episode 16, and that uh, and that was called "How to Create a National Ocean Policy." And they're now back to talk about how to implement the policy that they had a hand in helping to create. So, um, I let, uh, hello, Allison. Hello. Thank you for having us on. I'm going to do the introductions alphabetically. So, Allison Chase is an ocean policy analyst with the National Resources Defense Council. And our DC. And Sarah, are you there? Hi. I'm here, but Rob is the Natural Resources Defense Council. Oh, that's right. I, I uh, miswrote my notes here. I did it twice. How about that? So you're, you're defending the, the nature, not the nation, right? Right. Yeah, I want to get that straight. So Sarah Chases is director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, the, the Council's Ocean Initiative is what Sarah directs. And um, so I said how you were on an earlier show. This is really cool. You know, Tuesday, April 23rd, was St. George's Day. And that's the day when people celebrate the death of St. George, who died in 303 A.D. And the Dragon Slayer's Day is celebrated in many countries, including Great Britain and Canada, where Newfoundland takes the day off. And that's because John Cabot was flying the flag of St. George when he discovered Newfoundland in 1497. And the flag of St. George was also flown on the Mayflower when the Pilgrims arrived in 1620. So I'm attempting to give this day a maritime kind of theme because it was on Tuesday, April 23rd, that President Obama issued the final plan for managing the oceans, outlining a strategy that aims to coordinate the work of 27 different agencies and departments and to reconcile competing interests. Um, and there are a few competing interests over our uses of the oceans. Um, why all the hoopla over releasing the implementation plan for the national ocean policy? Well, I think that the plan is a really exciting step. The executive order was signed in um, June, I'm sorry, July of 2010. And it called for a number of things, that, but it essentially pulled together the, all the federal agencies that have been working on ocean issues and Great Lakes issues. And there were, there's more than 20 federal entities that are governing our oceans, and there's over 100 
40 laws. And so all these things potentially were you know, odds with each other. There was little or no communication and coordination between them. And the National Ocean Policy came out and said, all right, we need to do a better job of protecting our oceans. Our oceans are struggling. They are fighting off pollution and ocean acidification, and we need these resources to help provide the food and jobs and recreation for now and also for the future. So we're going to do two things. We're going to have the agencies work closer together at the federal level and also encourage them to work with the regions, with the states, um, to develop regional pl ocean plans so how, for how we can better manage our, our oceans sustainably. So the plan that came out just last week talked about how the agencies are going to be coordinating their work better. So there were a specific list of actions that could be taken to improve the health of our oceans. It dealt with things like ocean acidification and water quality and habitat protection. And the agencies came together, looked at the work they're doing, and tried to figure out synergies between it and ways to um, improve on that work. This plan is a to-do list of what we're going to see from the federal government in terms of helping save the future of our oceans. A lot of people are feeling that, you know, the, the president's creating a new authority that's going to regulate and control our activities. And so they think, yippee, we can get more, you know, shutdown of this or that, or we can, you know, have marine reserves set aside or these kinds of things. Um, but does this really mean more red tape like that? Hi, uh, I'll wow. jump in on that one. Um, yeah. So, you know, the idea here is not to increase red tape, but to reduce it and make government work more efficiently and effectively. Uh, it does not create any new authorities. It uses, it relies on existing legal authorities that agencies have. And so the idea is how do you coordinate better and um, get them to work together really to enhance the protection of, of ocean health and, and sustainable use of the ocean. So, That's know, right, because no... the policy doesn't create any new agency exactly. or any new exactly. entity other than a council, which is kind of advisory and communicative. But, right. you know, and... So it's not like an opportunity. If you don't like what the New England Fisheries Management Council is doing, you can you know, have this other you know, gorilla come in the room and mess about or something. This is simply a... Uh, a lot of communication vehicle and a collaborative, uh, con you know, kind of collaborative communications, I guess, and uh, and you know, coordinated action, but under ex using existing authorities and existing law, not right. you know, layering on new, new anything new in that regard. But it is important in terms of you know prioritizing actions. And one thing that is important in the plan that Ali was referring to is that it identifies specific actions specific agencies will take by specific times. So it provides for a kind of accountability on the part of government, which uh, is important and which, you know, we and, and interested members of the public uh, want to make sure they're held, they're held to. That's excellent. Benchmarks things so that, you know, the agencies say it's going to take us, we can do it this amount of time, and so then they have a sense of how things are going to happen. And I found uh, I was involved with the creation of the Boston Harbor Island National Park in 96, and that's the first national park that has no authority. The NPS is not an owner of anything. They have to just coordinate the owners to manage. And what came about in that is that 
the middle managers were for the first time given permission to call, to talk outside their silos to other middle managers. And so there was a wonderful synergy that happens. And I see that happening at these National Ocean Policy meetings where you have the Coast Guard sitting next to the Navy, next to Interior, next to NOAA, um, you know, everybody, and these different agencies kind of hearing what each other has to say. Yeah, no, it's really important. And uh, Ali and I were recently at a meeting, sort of the launch of um, the regional planning work in the Mid-Atlantic. And, you know, we heard repeatedly from state agency reps and, and, and federal agency and the public about how they were learning about activities uh, that other agencies or entities were undertaking that were relevant and to them, but they had not been aware of. And so there is an important exchange of information function that this is already encouraged, and it's it's very uh, it's exciting to see. That's a great example of efficiency. It's when you don't have to reinvent the wheel, you're more efficient as government. Right, right. So, for example, I mean, just to be specific, yes, you know, please. in the Mid-Atlantic, there is a you know, as we know, there's a lot of encouragement of the sighting of offshore wind. And, um, and and interest in, in moving that ahead, uh, a lot of people weren't aware that the Coast Guard was undertaking uh, an analysis and a planning for um, shipping shipping routes through the Mid-Atlantic, um, not just in and out of ports, but actually from port to port, and that that process obviously could have real implications for the siting of the wind farm. So just being aware of that, knowing, learning where those two processes uh, were being carried out and how and by whom, you know, it was important. Yes, it is. The Department of Commerce is trying to find ways to lessen our carbon footprint by, instead of having trucks going up and down um, Route 95, up and down the eastern seaboard, have ships transporting those goods, you know, the eastern coast city to city. And, um, you know, without this kind of uh, policy and framework and counsel, uh, the windmill designers may have no clue that that kind of research is going on. Right, and the implications of encouraging that kind of traffic and where it occurs relative to where, you know, offshore wind is prevalent and, and needs to be sited, and which relates also to where the load centers are. And then, you know, how does that relate to important fishing grounds uh, in the region? And then finally, what about the right whales that are endangered that migrate through? So uh, having an understanding of both the existing and planned and anticipated uses in a region and coordinating um, the oversight and, and management of those is really important, and that's really one of the key things that this National Ocean Policy and Plan is, is seeking to do. Yes, I, I really like your blog, Sarah, where you wrote that we now have a list of specific actions the federal government will take to tackle some of the major threats facing ocean life. Um, you spoke a bit about one, but what's another example, another action? Well, there's, there's quite a bit in there about... Um, sea level rise and ocean acidification, uh, calling for the government, for example, uh, on sea level rise to develop and share sea level rise estimates with states so they can better map and uh, identify key areas that are expected to experience flooding so that homeowners and businesses um, know what to expect and how to prepare. And on ocean acidification, there are uh, a whole host of things in terms of 
uh, you know, understand, strengthening the networks um, to to track the impacts that acidification um, may be having on living marine resources like fisheries and, and marine protected species and conducting um, targeted research on what coastal communities are going to be vulnerable in light of uh, acidification and climate change. So, you know, these are really important um, yes. in, in sources, things that need to be done so that we can be better prepared for what are going to be, you know, really significant impacts from uh, climate change and acidification on our oceans. Yeah. Uh, can you remind us about the connection between acidification and climate change? Well, they both uh, really derive from the buildup of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's true for climate change. For ocean acidification, it's really CO2 specifically uh, that is contributing to the increasing acidity of the oceans. So, and both um, aspects of, of um, in the buildup of CO2 are going to have an impact um, on the oceans. In terms of climate change, it's going to contribute to the warming of the oceans. It's going to affect ocean currents. We heard at a recent conference that it's anticipated there may be a slowdown, for example, in the Gulf Stream. Uh, mm. as a result, and uh, that could have serious implications because the Gulf Stream pushes a lot of water offshore, and as it slows down, um, it may mean that there's more water that is going to be pushed onshore, and so that could exacerbate uh, sea level rise in the mid-Atlantic and, and in the northeast. So that's an example of climate change affecting the ocean. And then uh, in terms of acidification, um, we're seeing in, in the areas of upwelling off the West Coast already uh, the impacts of uh, increased acidification causing death of oyster larvae uh, and the like. And, and so, you know, we really, this is so going to be a major challenge. So oyster farms have had to close and move away from Oregon because of the uh, And in Washington, you know, they in had Washington, to learn yeah. how to, you know, not withdraw water from uh, that was too acidic at key times, and, and then they they monitor to determine when they can withdraw uh, seawater. And so, you know, we're going to have to learn how to how to deal with these things. And as we also are working very hard, obviously, to to curb uh, emissions and and the buildup of CO2 at the, at the same time. Yeah, it's counterintuitive that ocean acidification cannot be fixed by just pouring lime into the ocean or something. You need to address the source, and the source is, as you were saying, it's the increasing carbon in the atmosphere. Every four molecules or so, you'll get one of them getting forced into the ocean, and when the carbon, carbon dioxide goes into the ocean, there's a chemical process that causes the city to go up. So the only thing we can do, as I understand, to, is we really need to back off our amounts of carbon and other greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. That's right. And also they're learning. There was just a Blue Ribbon Task Force report out of the state of Washington which found that there are also local spikes in, in acidity um, resulting from um, land-based sources of carbon and nitrogen. And so that can exacerbate the global uh, emissions problem. So in and terms of acidity of the ocean. So, you know, part of what's important in the in the uh, ocean plan, implementation plan, is the focus on getting a better handle on, 
you know, in, in different parts of the country, how is that acidification process unfolding? There's also a lot in the plan about pollution as well, um, both marine debris, sort of the, the trash bags that you're seeing on the beach and um, different pieces that are you know, come up with the waves. Then there's also um, the water quality aspect of that. So how well, Alex, can you spend a little more about the trash? Because people are calling in. They're really worried about, I mean, just at lunch, the guy next to me at the counter was saying, um, you know, what about that um, – ocean of, of plastic in the middle of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Well, uh, so this is an issue people are concerned about. How does uh, the national ocean policy address um, trash? There's a number of items in there that talk about uh, coordinated work between NOAA and EPA to help facilitate removal of trash and marine debris and, and ha basic hazards to navigation um, through a variety of work with communities, with states. Um, there's also best practices that they're trying to develop and, and get out in terms of how to respond to debris that comes, you know, major amounts of marine debris from natural hazards, such as, you know, this tsunami debris that you saw washing up in California. So there's a, di there's a number of different elements that, that are moving ahead that are called out in the plan. That's there's wonderful. Also, when you collaborate, you can do so much more in um, on Stellwack and Bank National Marine Sanctuary off of Massachusetts, the, the local fishermen are working with the Coast Guard and some other agencies to, because um, the fishermen can see uh, fishing gear that's gone adrift and been lost. They can see it on their um, underwater equipment, you know, their, I guess it's radar or something. And um, they can then um, work with another agency to literally pull that stuff out, and they need a big enough barge to get it off the water. But uh, this is something that no agency can do by itself. But by combining agencies, we can do uh, we can get more done. Uh, we're talking about the national ocean policy, and we're going to take a short break and be right back to uh, talk to Allison Chase and Sarah Chases. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking to Allison Chase and Sarah Chases from NRDC, and we're talking about implementing the National Ocean Policy Plan. So this is simply a plan that engages the agencies in communicating with one another, no new authorities, just planning and trying not to have to reinvent wheels, but um, further uh, be able to get more, you know, from the ocean with less damage to the ocean. Uh, and it's difficult process because oceans are very complex. It isn't like the land, you know, where you've got a surface that you can manage or something. It's three-dimensional, and it's shifting over time. And it, it really tests our ability to manage uh, an ecosystem. And we call it ecosystem-based adaptive management because we have to think systemically, holistically. And how does, um, Allison, how does this... Uh, National Ocean Plan help us with ecosystem-based management? Well, the National Ocean Policy, one of the foundational principles behind it is to manage um, by something called ecosystem-based management, which is essentially ensuring that you have a healthy and resilient ocean ecosystem at the core of your work. So it, it doesn't remove humans from the equation or anything like that, but what it does is say, look, all of the things that we turn to the ocean to provide rely on having a healthy resource. So seafood, uh, enjoying a day at the beach, or you know, just a, a number of the, the different fishing jobs that, that rely on our ocean, being able to go out and watch whales, all of that is going to only be able to continue if you have a healthy resource. So at the start, let's make sure that anything that we do benefits the overall functioning of the resource. And so we're not overtaxing an area um, with a variety of different cumulative impacts, and we're able to continue uh, to use those resources into the future. Yeah, and we're talking about just being smart and savvy. And so often I hear that, oh, there are just too many people. They shouldn't go into an area because they're going to spoil it and stuff. And it's like they don't have to spoil areas. You know, it's not the number of people. It's the stupidity of pollution and stuff. Well, I think part of it, too, is that we have a, a structure that's grown up over time to manage in silos so mm. that every um, particular use has uh, a different agency that deals with it or different laws that it's governed by. And a lot of times that does make sense because you're able to get very specific on certain things. But there's a value to having folks from those silos communicate better with each other so that you're using the full suite of tools that you have at your disposal to actually improve something. So a lot of fisheries work can be done, but that doesn't mean the fish by the fisheries councils, but they don't necessarily have control over habitat issues. 
And of course, in order to have a healthy fish population, you need to have the habitat to support it. So there's a variety of uh, different people that need to be brought to the table so that we can make improvements that will sustain us for the future. So, Rob, just yes, to tie uh, it back again to the plan, what we see in the plan is an important focus on uh, ecosystem-based management, and so it calls, for example, for um, the development in the next year of guidance to all federal agencies about how to implement EBM using existing regulatory and legislative authorities, again, not, you know, adding on, um, so that those principles can be in integrated into agency-specific uh, programs. And also, um, yeah, it talks about incorporating EBM into federal agency environmental planning and review processes and uh, identifying some pilots for implementation of EBM uh, and then using you know, the lessons learned from those pilots in other areas and to inform the larger effort. So, uh, you know, there are a number of, the, in addition to those, a number of other steps to actually carry forward on the plans and the policies commitment to EBM. Yeah, it's that systems-based thinking that EBM, that ecosystem-based management calls us to do, to task on. And I had the good fortune to walk Capitol Hill with Richard Nelson, who was speaking for the lobstermen of Maine as best as one individual could. You know, if there are two lobstermen, there are going to be three opinions on something. But um, uh, Richard's point was that um, would you please – make it one-stop shopping for the users like the lobstermen. They shouldn't have to. They'd much rather spend time with one group in, at one place than to have to go to a meeting of the fishermen over here and the gravel miners over there and the windmill placers over here and the outfall people, you know. So the, the, this is a fabulous step forward if we can uh, pull it together into one uh, policy, planning policy group. And that's really what um, we'll get to as we talk about regional ocean planning is then in addition to this plan that came out, which is really uh, a blueprint for what the federal agencies will be doing over the next several years specifically, in addition, there's a complementary regional effort that's going forward that will lay out that vision for uh, each of the major ocean regions of the country. Yes. Now, Ali, there was a second thing I wrote down during the break, and I forgot what it was. Habitat. Habitat, yes, please. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're, we were pleased to see in the final plan that in, in there's a whole section on coastal and ocean resilience, uh, and it talks about um, protecting, conserving, and restoring coastal and ocean habitats and agencies coordinating to use um, scientific and ecosystem-based approaches to achieving healthy ocean and coastal habitats. And um, NOAA has a commitment in the coming year to identify priority species and high-value habitats that would benefit uh, from conservation. And there also is a commitment to reactivate uh, the site evaluation list, um, which is under the Marine, National Marine Sanctuaries Program, uh, and which has been really quiescent for many years. You know, we haven't had any new National Marine Sanctuaries designated in this country since 2000, and we only have 14 around the whole country. Um, so it's exciting to see a commitment to 
sort of jump-starting that process uh, as part of this plan as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a tough question because we want to uh, you know increase access to the ocean for for people to get to the ocean and stuff and and be out there and and you know um, so, but that is an issue. Another issue was that there was a fear that it was too complex. Um, um, Mark Bagage brought this up that the uh, that the national ocean policy was just too complicated, and I understand he's very pleased with the result of, of helping it be more clear, maybe more transparent. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, he uh, issued a statement which really talked about how it had been reduced from I don't know how many pages, Ellie, ninety or something to thirty, or more than more than a hundred to thirty. It had been. Um, you know, it was less focused on regulatory actions and more focused on cooperative actions, uh, simpler, easier to access and read. So I think he was, and it did make um, clear that if states did not want to participate in regional planning, then this did not, the, the ocean policy and plan did not require them to. It encourages it, but it doesn't require it. So there was clarification on some important points that I think he appreciated. And he yeah, because we're seeing that around the country, and that some areas are more ready to do this kind of work than others. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's for a number of factors. Like, you know, New England is, is a bunch of small states all together, so it makes sense that states talk to each other because we're so small, you know. And then California is very big, and it's its own nation, and so it can do stuff just as one state. And then you get states like Florida that. Um, are really, you know, kind of burned by um, how they felt overmanaged by the feds, and so they're reluctant to uh, get into this stuff. And it's not right for Florida's concerns to slow down the progress made in other areas. Well, I think that this is just a fantastic opportunity, though, the regional planning work for folks to have an additional say in the decisions that are getting made about their ocean. You know, I think that what you've seen is that you've got particular processes in place to deal with each project as it comes up. And there's no way to look at the full suite of things that are being proposed for any area or to look at the number of things that you already have ongoing and to get a sense of what the cumulative impact of all those things are going to be. And so Massachusetts um, had the, the Massachusetts Ocean Act and moved ahead with some of the planning in their region. Rhode Island also had um, something called a SAMP process, which is similar. It's also going out and getting a sense of how the ecosystem there is functioning, what the health is, and, and what sort of uses are being proposed and how to balance things together in a more sustainable way. And those sorts of ideas are, are, are what's at the base of some of this regional work. So New England has generated um, – They've established their regional planning body um, of all the, the states in, in New England, the Northeast Regional Planning Body, and they're on their second meeting, and they're hammering out the goals that they want to see through this process. They're going to be talking to the public over the summer, um, going and holding meetings in all the different states. And I think this is a really great way for folks to get engaged at the ground floor and to talk a little bit about what their vision is, how they're using the ocean, and to speak up and make sure that their recreational uses are being counted and their values are being part of this process. The Mid-Atlantic 
regional planning body, as Sarah mentioned, is, has just started up as well. Um, and they, they haven't held their first official meeting yet, but I'm looking forward to it because I think that it's really important to get out the information that the public is using these public resources and that it's more than just a variety of projects being proposed, that these are places that tie into people's identities and are important to them. Yes, absolutely. And you know, people are reluctant to change, and they're wary of, of new things. And so it, it was fortunate that Massachusetts, you know, could could get behind a, a national ocean, a, a state ocean, state water ocean planning process that was collaborative. And you know, when the um, when the governor acted on that, he, um, or I guess before he acted on that, they he appointed uh, Deer and Babrat to. Um, who worked for the Coastal Zone Management Department to kind of, you know, get it together. And uh, so Dan would go to these meetings, and these people would say, well, what if it doesn't work, you know? What if you can't get it together, you know? And, and uh, Jim would say, well, then I'll be a stern man once again, you know, pulling lobster traps or something. And uh, his, he also talked about having to drink from a fire hose because there's so much, as you indicated, there's so many different components. That everybody wants to have a voice at the table and be recognized. And once they are, they kind of simmer down. And, they kind of, you know. um, and, and now Darren Babrod is uh, the president's man and the president's in the White House uh, uh, coordinating the uh, national ocean policy. So it, it's a good beginning, but you need these success stories. And so in Massachusetts, they made all the different uh, agencies draw up or fill in charts of where the sensitive areas were and where the not-so-sensitive areas were. And they didn't argue with anybody. They just laid, overlaid all these different agency charts. And when Comcast wanted to get a better wireless connection to Martha's Vineyard by running a cable out from uh, the other side of Buzzards Bay, uh, they were able to, I think it was Comcast, but whatever the cable company was, they, wanted, they were able to look at those, that composite of overlaid charts and at the first meeting with the state agents say, okay, we understand we have to bury the pipe, uh, the wire under the first couple of miles of inshore waters because that's very sensitive. And then as we cross Buzzards Bay, we're going to have to zig up to the north and zig back down again because right in the middle there is something sensitive and so on and so forth until he ended up in Martha's Vineyard. And it's just such an improvement over the old days where uh, you'd have to go to 37, well, not 37, but a lot of different agencies and um, and you ended up going to the ones with least resistance, and that didn't help because as an entrepreneur, you don't know what the big thresholds were you had to cross, to you know, or whether they were crossable. So this is very exciting work to start getting plans put together on, on a national basis of our nation's waters on how we can proceed. Um, tell us more about the regional uh, efforts. Well, I think it's really exciting that all these folks are coming together in the room to talk. I mean, you've got the, the federal partners, um, the state representatives, and the tribes all together as, as leads of the, the regional planning bodies. And then there's so many other folks that are involved in ocean businesses or in using the ocean to swim or surf or fish. And all those folks have a unique perspective that needs to be pulled into the process. So I think it's very exciting that they're setting goals, but that they're also taking public input right at those initial stages and figuring out how to move ahead. Yes. Yes, they're very – and that's what people 
need to feel is that they're being heard when they come to these things. And the uh, they've been very good about uh, getting a sense that people have been heard. Yeah, and I think it's and some of it is is going to be more than just listening to folks, but it, you know also really taking their points into account. There's a lot of information that we we have and that we've mapped and that we've put onto online portals so that we can take a look and see where things are. But there's also a lot of historical understanding of places that we may not have in the perfect data set. So it's important to listen to the fishing communities and find out what, what they know of different places and where they think it's most important to um, preserve key habitat and also to the tribes to, to find out more information about places that are important for their background. So these are things that um, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, find right off the bat, but if you have everyone talking about a particular place and they're all in the same room together, you can learn a lot about how people are really using the place and and its importance. Yes, we're finding that Native Americans were living here when sea level was much lower and possibly when the mastodons were roaming around on the what's now Cape Cod Bay and so that there are, you know, ancient burial sites offshore and uh, it's so much better to be aware of that up front so that we can plan accordingly than to have something finally get approved and then thrown out because it's, whoops, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's very important. I know that the Shinnecock Nation in New York um, are off on Long Island, and with sea level rise, they're watching their land erode. Mm. And, I mean, this is their land. This is their country to a certain extent. This is where yes. they have been allowed to, to live. So these are very personal decisions for a lot of people. And, the and threat- Rob, the uh, Go ahead, you know, New England, Mid-Atlantic are sort of the first out of the box. But uh, interestingly, the Pacific Islands regional planning body now has been established and the one in the Caribbean. And uh I think the hope is, you know, sometime this year for the West Coast one. So, you know, the the idea is that as as time goes, these other regions will also initiate this process, and they can learn from the experience in uh, New England and, and Mid-Atlantic. I mean, I think the Mid-Atlantic is going to learn from New England because uh, they're ahead, and as you point out, they've had the experience, or some of the states have had the experience, not just Massachusetts, but also in Rhode Island with um, right. doing planning. I mean, Rhode Island developed a uh, special area management plan, a SAMP, which doesn't just cover state waters but extends out into federal waters and seeks to identify, you know, where where would be uh, a good location to site offshore wind farm and, you know, where are the sensitive areas, et cetera. And so that, so Rhode Island is also helping to lead the way. And, and, Very much uh, so. We had a regional meeting in Narragansett, Rhode Island, and it was clear mm-hmm. I have a very Massachusetts perspective, but um, they they have done phenomenal work, and they have done better work uh, with tribal nations than has Massachusetts, although uh, it's more regional, so maybe you can't say that. But No, I can't say that at all. We've done great work with the Mashpee Native Americans here in Massachusetts. But, um, yes, and this is an exciting new development for me is learning about um, the knowledge that tribal nations bring to this. Uh, and we'll speak more about that after we take this short break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the National Ocean Policy with Allison Chase and Sarah Chases. Um, I guess, Allie, uh, how can people learn more about your work and uh, the work at NRDC or about uh, the national ocean policy and everything? Sure. Well, I, if you go to nrdc.org, there's a ton of information on all the different work that NRDC is engaged with. And our oceans program has a page that talks about the campaigns that we've been working on. Um, there is a video that you can watch. Uh, it's called Ocean Blueprint. It's narrated by Philippe Cousteau. And it talks a little bit about some of the um, spatial planning work that can be done and, and the benefits of having regions work together to help improve the health of our ocean and to use it sustainably. So that would be one key place to send to. And I, I'd also suggest that folks Google the National Ocean Council and just go to the White House site and see for themselves the, the implementation plan, you know, pick the issue that you work on the most, do a word search for it. You can find a whole number of actions that they're committed to achieving over the next several years. Yeah, great graphics at all those sites. And, and isn't Philippe Cousteau articulate about the issues? Amazing. Yeah, really I really amazing. recommend that Wonderful. website again. Uh, what's the one to, to, at NRDC to hear Philippe talk about the National Ocean Council? Yeah, it's Ocean Blueprint. Ocean Blueprint. Yes. He did another one for us, too, on um, Atlantic Canyons, and that's that's another beautiful one if, if folks have additional time. Yeah, if you can't get out in the water and you have a little bit of sea fever, just go to the NRDC website, and you can get lost in the images there. Um, so even though this is not a, a powerful uh, group, um, 
this is you know a planning body basically it's um basically having meetings of the different agencies uh the national ocean policy does need some funding doesn't it well you know we talked about the regional work um rob and yes. um you know the the budget um uh, the president's budget does include funding to support that regional work it's not a lot of money but it's important seed money and so um you know we've been working as with as other groups have and as as a number of the states who who want to support this regional work uh to make sure that as the budget moves through the congress that funding is included as part of NOAA's budget so that's something we're actively engaged in right now the appropriations process for the next for um fiscal year 14 which begins you know October 1 um is in process and so we're actively supporting you know making sure that funding is there um the other piece of it is to make sure that there are no uh prohibitions included in that for agencies to work on implementation of the national ocean policy there isn't like a line item you know national ocean policy but a number of the action to carry out the actions that are identified in the implementation plan agencies need um you know the funding for their agency uh and so any kind of prohibition uh on their using funds to implement it would be very detrimental yet we've seen in prior years efforts to include that kind of prohibition in legislation and so we have to really work to make sure that doesn't happen yes and you're doing excellent work because it's it's an education process you know the the knee jerk reaction is that this is more big government and we can't afford that and so it has to you're doing the education of this is uh for allowing the citizens to inform the government rather than just giving more power upstairs or something and there's a lot of work that the federal government does that the states and the regions are really hungry to get more on so a lot of the information that that NOAA has in terms of uh the impacts that you're going to see from sea level rise they can pull that together i know they've helped generate information on uh bird data for the mid atlantic that's really important as we go forward and we try to figure out the best places to site offshore wind yes so these are things um that are being generated at the request of their regions and the states and it's really important that this work continue and i guess i push back too i mean i think that to some extent you know it may not seem like a a big deal that these agencies are coordinating um but actually it's a huge difference in just the the way that they're oriented it this is this is about being a better listener and hearing what people want and need and allowing people to be more engaged in the decision making process so you know i i think no one really enjoys having extra meetings but you know if you're having the meeting and you're able to walk out of it with a better understanding of how to get from point a to z and it's going to um cut down on the amount of time that you're going to need to work on a project in the long run i mean these are great things Yeah, they love it when they get to the meeting. Everyone is just thrilled to find that other people are dealing with the same issues that they've been dealing with in their cubicle uh, in different different flavors sort of, but mm-hmm. and the hardest thing is to get the permission from upstairs to 
step away from your other obligations. And so that's why there needs to be some funding for it so that people will discover that um, this is money well spent. And it's not, you know, it's not a lot of money. It's simply for having the meetings. It's not to, um, you know, go fund some researchers to go off and do something. It's just to uh, get, um, you know, to help the agencies do what they're already doing and, and to do it better, I guess. And to encourage, you know, and, and provide support to the regions to go forward. I think that's the that's the yeah. other piece that's important uh, because you do need some seed money to encourage that to happen and and uh, provide the travel funds and the and in some cases in the in the mid Atlantic, um, some of that regional ocean planning money is going uh, to pull together a, a portal which people are very excited about. It's uh, providing a location where a lot of key data is being put pulled together and uh can be um, you know shown in a way that really overlay you know shows the different overlays and uh you can you can see where the conflicts potentially may be between different activities and different uh resource uh, and habitat areas and so you know, that's going to be an important tool. So some of the funding that's going to the regions is going to lay the groundwork then that will enable the planning process to go forward so that when people sit down and say, okay, where does it make sense to, you know, encourage the siting of certain activities and where are certain activities likely to run into problems, that information will be there to draw on. So that's also why it's important that the that the regional ocean funding go forward. That's huge because people, except for bureaucrats, they have no clue how difficult it is for these different different cultures in order to communicate with each other or to share data. They've been so well hardened to avoid you know uh, a virus you know attacks and hacking and stuff that it isn't simply like oh yeah send us your Excel spreadsheets or something. It's completely different languages. I mean, you're talking about NOAA communicating with the Navy, communicating with the Coast Guard, communicating with Interior. I mean, these these departments go way back, and they've all developed their own systems and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the immediate benefits I saw in the a regional meeting that we had in Narragansett, Rhode Island, for the Northeast, was the representative from the Navy is also attending the Mid-Atlantic and the South Atlantic uh, efforts, and uh, so he was able to, um, you know, act as a liaison between those groups. And even though New England wants to add New York State maybe as as a liaison on our on the New England group, so that there could be more liaisoning, uh, this um, ability to be able to communicate across the different agencies is not to be underpriced. It is very uh, difficult and um, and totally worthwhile, as you were saying. And also between states and the feds and among yeah. states and then between users and, you know, the states and the feds. So there are a number of different important data sources and um, that can feed into this kind of process that are relevant and useful. And so that's this provides a forum for that. Um, you know, one of the interesting questions now, you know, being addressed is, okay, what are some of the initial steps that need to be taken at the regional level in these, in these areas? And, um, you know, I think w- we heard very strongly in the mid-Atlantic, and I'm sure it was echoed in New England, on the need for strong public, a, a, a very transparent and strong public 
stakeholder process as the agencies and the states move ahead with their planning, um, the importance of really providing meaningful opportunities for public engagement. That's really essential. So, you know, how that plays out is going to be very, very important. And if there are any listeners who are interested in, you know, participating in, in their region, this is something for them to be really watching for. And it's, um, you know, I'm sure we can mention, you know, the different regions or entities that they ought to be watching. But it's it's going to be important for the public to be engaged and making sure that um, this process really does protect the public interest. The ocean is a public resource. Um, You know, we're not dealing with private land in this instance. Uh, And so making sure there's a robust public engagement is really crucial. That is totally crucial. That legitimates the whole process. Mm -hmm. And so this collaborative effort only works if people collaborate. And, um, Allie, do you have the website for uh, National Ocean Policy people? It's a longer website. It's probably easier well, to Google, to Google National, National Ocean, Ocean Policy, right? and, and you'll go right to the, the right location and, and definitely yeah. read through those documents. You can I, also go to the um, Northeast Regional Planning Body. They have a website that you can go to um, that has all the information on the meeting that you just attended. And in the Mid-Atlantic, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Council on the Ocean, also has uh, a lot of great information, and there's a link on that site to their data portal. So you can get a sense as to how it works, because you, you don't even need to go to the meeting for that. I mean, you can just go online, click the different boxes you're interested in, whales, shipping lanes, wh- whatever you want to see, and it'll pop right up on the map so you can actually get a visual understanding of what's going on. Yeah, start locally. You know, go to the national site, and you quickly work your way down to the regionals or go right to the regionals um, or whatever interests you, unless you are interested in something more national. But um, the local stories are just phenomenal. We're kind of running out of time, and I wanted to uh, put a plug in for uh, the general listening public that on uh, May 13th in Washington, uh, the Blue Frontiers with David Helvarg and others are organizing what we call Blue Visions Conference. And it includes um, people coming to the conference uh, talking about the national ocean policy. And also, um, we're going to have Wednesday walking the hill um, to meet our legislators to talk about the importance of funding uh, the national ocean policy. Uh, and for more information about that, you can contact um, me at oceanriver.org or um, uh, go to bluefront.org. And... Um, Chases and, and Allison, um, Chase, um, thank you for ex- explaining this exciting new development of implementing the national ocean policy. Thank, thank you, you Rob. And so again, visit them. You can find them at the NRDC website. And that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.